This morning, we continue our sermon series, Living the Gospel. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John. Last week, we were in chapter 3 and saw Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee, who came in the dark of night to ask Jesus questions about his teachings. Jesus told him that he must be born again of the water and the Spirit, and he must be, that, that he must be baptized to be born into a new spiritual life. This confused Nicodemus, and so Jesus referenced a story from the time the Israelites spent in the wilderness, a time when snakes infested their camp. And the, the only hope they had of living was to look at the bronze snake that God had Moses place on a stick in the middle of the camp. By looking at the one who was lifted up, they would live. And then Jesus stated that the Son of Man would be lifted up, and that to live, you would only have to look to him, to rely on him, to have faith in him. I'm not sure that cleared a whole lot up for Nicodemus on that dark night, but what a huge hope, or what a hope it brings for us, as we recognize that the Son of Man being lifted up, being exalted, is Christ on the cross dying for us. This is where our hope is found. Look to Christ and live. Today, we'll be in chapter 4 of John where Jesus goes from having a conversation in the dark to having a conversation by the light of day. All through the book of John, we, we see this contrast, right? This light and, and dark. In the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples learn that the Pharisees are out to get them since Jesus was just racking up disciples in that area. So they leave there and, and, are, and head out towards Judea to, to Galilee. Now, in order to get there, they have to go through Samaria. And it's important for us to recognize that the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't, they didn't get along. They don't really mix. The beliefs of the Samaritans had, had similar roots to those of the Jews, but there are some differing elements, and the Jews saw these different beliefs as heretical. And so they saw the Samaritans as a, a lesser group of people, a people that any self-respecting Jew would avoid. You didn't hang out with Samaritans. It's just, not, it's just not something that you did. That being said, the quickest route to their destination led through Samaria, so that is where Jesus and his disciples went. As they were walking the road, Jesus became tired, and the disciples went off into town to buy food, and Jesus sat down at a well. While he was sitting there, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus asked her, "'Will you give me a drink?' And that is where our text starts this morning. We'll be picking up in verse 9 of chapter 4. You are invited to follow along in your Bibles or the Bible provided in the pew in front of you, or you can read along on the screens. We read the word of the Lord this morning. John 4, we'll be reading verse 9 through 30. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, 
give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. I spent my last two years of high school at Hillcrest Lutheran Academy, a private school in Minnesota. My dad was still pastoring a church up in Canada, and so I lived in the dorms. One of the things that excited me about attending Hillcrest was that they had a football team. Up in Birch Hills, Saskatchewan, our our school was too small to warrant a football program, and football being my favorite sport, I'd always wanted to play, so I was really pumped about finally getting that chance. Now, I've mentioned that I was a pretty small guy in high school, so when I showed up and expressed my interest in football, the coaches were, were, were probably less than enthused. You know, they weren't, they weren't that impressed. I went through the, the opening team meetings and tryouts and put forth my best effort, hoping to impress the coaches and to earn a spot on the roster. I remember after the, the final meeting, before, before the coaches announced who had made the cut, the, the head coach asked me to wait for a bit while everyone else left. When it was just he and I, he told me that I wasn't really needed on the team. Now, he, he did it gently and, and kindly. I know he was just looking out for me, not wanting me to waste my afternoons running sprints and standing on the sidelines when I could be out enjoying that time with my friends. I remember looking at him and saying, Coach, I, I just want to play ball. He smiled, patted me on the shoulder, and responded, Sounds good, Stenberg. We'll see you at practice. I spent my junior year of high school on the C-Squad football team. We were the bottom of the barrel. If we saw action during a game, it was because we were crushing the other team so badly that there was no way our squad was going to blow it. And if you've ever played high school sports or watched a show about high school sports, you know that there's like a hierarchy 
on a team. There's varsity, who, who everyone wants to be because they're popular and they get the attention and they get the playing time. And then there's JV, right? This is who is looking for their, they're kind of earning their spot. They're waiting their time. They're biding their time until they get to be varsity, prob- varsity probably the, the following year. And then underneath JV, there is the C-Squad. At least that's how it worked at Hillcrest. We got to wear helmets and jerseys, but we never really got to be part of the team. We rode the bus, but we were the bottom rung. When we huddled, we had to take the outside ring so that those who needed to hear what the coach had to say would be in the middle, closer to where they were doing the speaking. We carried equipment. We were afterthoughts. Often neglected so the coaches could teach those who were actually going to play meaningful snaps what they should be doing. The high school season in Minnesota starts in August, and in August it's still pretty hot and muggy. And we've been out there running around in shoulder pads and helmets, and we'd be sweating and, and gross and thirsty. And everyone, varsity through C-Squad, would be waiting for the coach to blow the whistle and call for a water break. We had these, these poles, right, with, with holes poked through them. And, and you hooked up the water hose. And so, like, if you, if you didn't know better, they looked like a, an insufficient sprinkler system for a lawn the pole with water shooting out like at, at different intervals, right? I remember on one particular day being so thirsty, and when the coach blew the whistle for water break, I ran as fast as I could, which was pretty fast back then. I was faster than even most of the varsity players. And, and I got underneath the spray of water and began just gulping down refreshment. I hadn't been there long. Like I had barely taken a couple gulps. When I felt two hands on my shoulder pads yank me aside and one of the varsity players scowled at me, telling me that C-Squad had to wait until the end and forcefully dumped me on my rear in the grass. That was not a very enjoyable moment for me. I wanted to be playing football. I was more skilled and talented than some of the guys above me, but because I didn't have the right physical makeup or enough experience, Because nepotism didn't favor me, I was banished to a lower rung. There weren't a lot of guys that I got to experience, or there weren't a lot of joys that I got to experience on the practice field. And when I had gone to claim one of them, I was told that I wasn't even good enough for that. The drink was for someone more important for me, someone who was worth more than me. It was a drink that I needed, a a drink that I longed for, but there were people more important than I was, and this drink was for them. Ever had a situation where you wanted something, where you needed something, but you were told you weren't good enough? That this wasn't for you? Ever been told that others are more important? Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a club. Maybe you felt this playing games, maybe you felt this in high school, maybe you felt this within your own house. After being told this message enough times, it can begin to sink in. We can begin to believe it. Maybe we have begun to believe the lies others tell us. Maybe we've begun to think that we aren't worth what others are, that that we aren't worthy enough for nice things to happen to us. Maybe we've begun to believe that we deserve the hard things that have happened to us, the loss, the pain, the abuse. Maybe we've begun to believe the lies our enemy Satan tells us. 
Maybe we look in the mirror and see the sin we've, we've tried to hide, the temptations and desires that we have buried deep and we don't want to talk about, that we hide in the darkness of our hearts and, and our lives. Maybe we see those and begin to believe that we are the trash that others say we are. Maybe we begin to believe that we aren't worthy of love, that we aren't special, that our dreams are insufficient. Maybe we have begun to feel like we aren't important enough to be first in line for the water or even in line at all. Can anyone relate to that? Has anyone experienced being put down so that someone else could be elevated? How many of us have felt so rejected that we begin to question our own worth? How many times have we listened to the lie that our sin is too big to forgive? How many times have we listened to the enemy when he has told us that we aren't worthy of the promises that God has made? When he has whispered that we aren't the kind of person that God wants in his family. How are you doing with that? If these are questions you have faced and fought and maybe succumbed to, then you have a lot in common with the woman in our text this morning. What a strange morning it must have been for her. Here is this Jewish man sitting by the well. She doesn't know this dude from Adam. He could be anybody. But she's going about her business. Got to fill up the water jug so there's something to drink at home. And as she's lowering her bucket into the well, this, this stranger, this, this Jew, this man whose people think that they are better than she is, that think they're worth more than she is, that look down on her and view her as a heretic, this man asks her for a drink. I'm a Samaritan. You aren't even supposed to talk to me, she responds. And you're asking me for a drink? And Jesus, being Jesus, seemingly ignoring her question, responds with a statement. If you knew the gift of God, the generosity of God, and if you knew who I am, then you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh, living water. This understandably confuses the woman. Dude, didn't you just ask me for water? And this is a deep well. And you have nothing to draw the water up with. What are you even talking about? Added to that living water, you say? Do you think you are better than Jacob? Meaning Jacob, the, the father of Joseph and his brothers who had become the 12 tribes of Israel. He's, he's the one that gave us this well and drank from it himself. Are you saying that your water is better than his? And then Jesus looks at her with what I can only imagine are deep brown eyes full of love, compassion, and conviction and says anyone who drinks from this well, Jacob's well, will be thirsty again at some point in time. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will, be, will never be thirsty again. I tell you the truth, the water I give them will become a spring of water from within, a fountain of eternal life. The woman is shocked at this statement. And responds, sir, give me this water so that I won't ever get thirsty. And I won't ever have to come back and return to this well. Jesus is at it again, isn't he? In the dark of night, in conversation with Nicodemus, the church leader, Jesus spoke about being born again, much to the confusion of his listener. And here, in the light of day, when a Samaritan woman, or with a Samaritan woman, Jesus speaks of living water, much to the confusion of of his listener. What is he talking about? How could there be a water that a person could drink 
that would stop them from thirsting. Where does this come from? How, how does this work? J. Ramsey Michaels, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, writes, writes this. The extraordinary promise of Jesus redefines both water and thirst. The point is not that he offers some magic water that quenches physical thirst forever, as the woman is quick to assume, but that he offers a different kind of water to quench forever a different kind of thirst. A different kind of water to quench forever a different kind of thirst. The water Jesus is offering would not break down into two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. This isn't a water intended to meet the needs of the body. It's a water that meets the needs of the soul. The water that Jesus is offering to the woman at the well is the water of faith. Now, I know I've mentioned it before, but when we see water in the Bible, whether it's passing through water like the Israelites walking through the Red Sea or someone being born of water and spirit, as our text talked about last week, our first reaction should be to look deeper and see if this is a reference to baptism. Through baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we drink Him in, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Sounds like living water to me. And through baptism, we are saved. We are brought into the family of God. We are clothed with Christ, as we read in Galatians chapter 3, 27. None of this by works. None of this because of how awesome we are. None of this because of the great example of moral living that we have put forth, but only by the grace of God, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So this living water that Jesus offers the woman at the well, it's the waters of baptism. It's, it's the Holy Spirit sent to us that we might drink Him in. It's, it's God's grace poured out over us. It's the cloak of Christ's righteousness wrapped around us. It's faith. It's God's gift of faith. And who, who is this gift for? When the woman asks for a drink of this water that will never leave her thirsty again, Jesus does a curious thing. He asks her to go and tell her husband about this water and then, and then to come back. The woman tells him that she doesn't have a husband, to which Jesus responds, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, but the man you are with right now is not your husband. And there it is. Her shame laid bare. In a society where you were supposed to be the good wife, where you were supposed to have one husband, be faithful to him, and grow old and die with him, she had been married not once, not twice, but five times. If we look into this a bit deeper, we will see that during this time period, she didn't have any agency in divorce. She wasn't the one that could decide to leave her husband. He would be the one leaving her. Now, we know that no relationship is perfect. If you've had a relationship with someone, chances are that person has hurt you at some point in time, whether it's a friendship, whether it's family, or a marriage. That said, how must this woman have felt to have been abandoned by the one who had promised to take care of her at least five times? Was she a model wife? 
Arguably not. She even admits as much later in the story when she says, referencing Jesus, this man told me everything I ever did. She knows that she's not completely innocent of all wrongdoing, but we also know that she's not the only one to blame for her broken relationships. And we know that the others of these, and we know that the other members of those relationships, the husbands, they rejected her. They, they abandoned her. They broke their vows to her. They told her that she wasn't worth the trouble of being married to. And the man she's with now, he isn't willing to commit. How many nights did she lay awake in bed listening to the lies that she wasn't worthy of real love? That her worth was in her body, what someone else could use her for? After that much rejection and public humiliation, how broken and shattered was her self-image? Who could love me as I am, she wondered. Who could ever possibly want me, the real me, the broken, messed up person that I have proven that I am? Who could want this? And there, that day at the well, she met the one who did. The one who does. She met the one who was with God and was God in the beginning. Who through all things were created. And then submitted perfectly to the will of the Father and was born into the frailty of man. She met the one who retained his deity, who stayed God, but who took on the form of man, the one who walked dusty roads on hot days, who got tired and needed water and food. The one who would teach and heal and cast out demons, the one whom the church leaders of the day despised and conspired to kill. She met the one who was betrayed by one of his followers and then abandoned by most of the rest. The one who was put through a rigged trial. The one who was sentenced to the worst death available for crimes that were fabricated. She met the one who carried a cross up a hill. But that cross would be the lesser of the weight upon his shoulders. For with that cross he carried the sins of the world. He carried the sins of her past five husbands. And he carried her sins. He carried your sins. And he carried mine. On that cross, Jesus Christ carried every sin that had ever happened and every sin that would ever happen. And there on the cross, he paid the price for them. He paid the price that she could not, that we could not. There on the cross, Jesus Christ became sin for us and the wrath of God was poured out on him. And there on the cross, he died that the sins of the world might be paid for. But he did not stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, then all the promises that God has made to his people are ours. For through faith, we are saved. Through faith, we are brought into the family of God. And these waters of faith, these living waters, are not ours to maintain. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. This faith is His, and it is given to us. He is the well our text talks about this morning. He is the fountain of faith that gives us hope eternal, and our hope is eternal. For because of this hope and through this faith, we will live forever with Jesus in heaven, forever worshiping God in the heavenly realms. All of this offered to a Samaritan woman. A woman who had been told by the world that she was not worthy. 
that she was not worth investing in, that she was lesser. Do you feel lesser? Do you feel unworthy? Do you feel unloved and neglected? Know that this water is for you too. Jesus continues in chapter 4 by stating that he doesn't care who you were, where you've been, or what you've done. God wants you in his family. He wants you to know that the living waters are for you, that he, that he died for you, that he loves you, that he wants to give you faith. He doesn't care how many people you've pushed away. He doesn't care how many people have abandoned you. He will never push you away. And you will never or forever be precious to him. He will never abandon you or forsake you. You are his. He created you. And the living waters are for you. As I sat on the grass in all my football gear, sweating and thirsty, raging inside at the frustration of my circumstances, and the position that I found myself in, I just wanted to cry. I just wanted to run. I wanted to go somewhere that I felt wanted, that I felt appreciated. But in that moment, I wasn't really sure where that place would even be. And then I felt a strong hand grab me by my arm and pull me to my feet. One of our coaches walked up to the varsity player who had just discarded me and grabbed him by the pads, looked him in the eye, and told him that this water was for everybody. The same sun beat down on all of us. We'd all been running. We'd all been working hard. And his place on varsity did not make him more important than me. The varsity player didn't like it. But he took his place in line and waited for his turn. And then my coach was turning to me and telling me to drink. This water is for everyone, son. Drink as much as you need. Church, friends, this water is for everyone. I don't know where you've been. I don't know the lies that you've been listening to or even the ones you've been telling yourself. What I do know is that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, and that the living waters of faith, the water that is sustained by Jesus Christ himself, is for you. Come and drink, all you who are thirsty, and God will give you rest. What a fantastic loving, gracious, and merciful God we serve. Amen.